0: Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Pastor Mark. Um, I'm a co-teacher here on Sunday nights. I teach with uh, Pastor Zach, and i uh, excited to be here. Um, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to sit in the same text through this series. And it's, by the way, it's not wrong to read the same text a couple weeks in a row. Okay? So I don't know if you knew that, but that's what we're going to be doing. So if you want to open up to 2 Corinthians 11, that's where we're going to kick off. And if you need a Bible, we've got them, right? Now you guys were just waiting. How patient. Your dad would have just yelled at me. But... Exactly. See, he's yelling at me right now. Second Corinthians. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. No shame in your game. right? Just don't hoard them and sell them on eBay. Who was here last week? How many of you were here last week? Of course, that's kind of tough to tell Like who wasn't. Who wasn't here last week? Don't feel feel bad. It's okay. All right, cool. Sounds good. All right. 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to pray, and we'll get going. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Jesus, just uh, as as, uh, Zach and Dane and and Chris and myself prayed before, just uh, would you make us more excited about what's true than fascinated with what's false? Um, Just would you cause us to become enamored with what is true rather than than focusing and and being entertained by what's false. And so we come to lift you up, not to beat anyone down. Um, But Jesus, we love who you are. We love the true you. We love the truth of your gospel. And so would you do that work in the heart of your people tonight? Would you just elevate yourself, Jesus, Via the Holy Spirit, would you elevate your gospel above all else tonight? Pray that we learn. Um, pray that we've got eyes and ears to hear, God, what you have to say to us. Holy Spirit, I ask for the ability to teach. Um, for, the, for those that are here, we pray for the ability to learn, um, that this wouldn't be just doing church because we have to check off that box for the week, that we would come to be equipped as saints for the ministry of your mission. And so, would you do that work? Uh, Jesus, we love you, we praise you, and uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Zach and I are endeavoring in the True Gospel series. And again, we entitled it that because we want to talk more about what's true rather than what's false, but the Bible certainly calls and, and proclaims that falsities are to be confronted. There's, there's, a, there's what's known as apologetics. How many have heard of apologetics? You can raise your hand. Heard of apologetics, and it comes from this understanding of defending the faith in the, in the original language apologia, where we get the word apologetics, that we're to be able to give a rational, logical defense for our faith. But it's interesting when people come in and claim the same faith as you, right? It's very easy to come and say, Well, I'm a Christian too, to which I usually respond, then why are you trying to convert me? But when they come inside and say, look, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe in the gospel. I believe in the good news. It becomes even harder. It's secondarily. It's even tougher. It's one thing to go up against atheists. It's one thing to go up against Islam. But what is it to go up against a couple of very, very kind and loving people that come to your door and say, have you heard about Jesus? You say, I have. And say, well, that's good. You go to church, I do. We want to tell you some things that you may not know about him. And you'd be surprised, even within the church, how many Christians can't defend the truth of Jesus, can't defend the truth of the gospel because we haven't trained ourselves up in that defense of our faith. And so we're endeavoring in four weeks, we took a look at Mormonism last week, which claims to be Christian, but is not. This week, we're taking a look at Jehovah's Witnesses, which claims to be Christian, but is not. Next week, we're gonna take a look, Zach's gonna take a look at Christian science, right? Like, no one knows anything about that religion. You have to show up to that week, okay? Claims to be Christian and science, but it's neither, okay? It's like grape nuts. That's cereal. It's not grapes or nuts. I don't know what it is, right? And then, fourth, which I'm actually perhaps most excited about, is actually, he's actually going to take a look at Unitarian Universalism in the fourth week. Um, and that 's going to be good, but again, so what we 're doing endeavoring to do is to break down the simplicity of the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel, and we get that simplicity from this it says in second corinthians eleven it says, "Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and this is just the apostle Paul defending the fact that he's an apostle. In this book, he tends to do two major things. One, he defends his apostleship, and two, he contends with false doctrine. That's the the two major thrusts of 2 Corinthians. And so he's not saying, oh, that this is folly, this is crazy. He says, look, if you would just bear with me as I defend myself as an apostle, who Paul, being called by Jesus from heaven, right, had to defend it, he says is a little folly and, I de- and indeed you do bear with me. He knew that they, they believed him. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And that's a good pastor. And Paul was a good pastor. He was jealous for their hearts, minds, and souls. And, and Zach and I, by the grace of God, every day should be, if we're in the Holy Spirit growing more and more jealous for the hearts, the minds, and the souls of those that are entrusted to us. And Paul says, I am jealous For you with a godly jealousy, as a good jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that you may that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, we took a look at that last week. That that Satan came into the garden of Adam and Eve, and he began to play games with the word of God. Did he not? Oh, did did God really say? Because it's actually not that way. You can really, it's not going to be that bad. And Eve responded by adding or changing God's word. He said, you can eat of anything, but don't eat of that tree. She said, we can't eat of that tree. We can't even touch it. God never said that. And so what happens is that people begin to change God's word to suit themselves because we ultimately want to be God. God. The root of all sin was in that moment when Adam and Eve said, we'll take God down off his throne and we'll put ourselves there. And they fell for the same trick that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Because he said, I will be like the most high. Picked a fight with God, lost, got kicked out, went into the garden. Said, you guys can be like God. You can know good and evil. They said, you know what? I want to be like God. And they put God up here. And we do the same thing every day. We can't look at them being like, they didn't get it. We do the same thing every day. And so Paul says, look, I'm concerned that, that somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Look, I'm not going to say that, that theology is, is entirely simple, but good theology is entirely possible to grasp. It's entirely applicable to your life. Or else it's, it's just, as the Bible says, knowledge puffeth up. Look, you've got guys that can stash themselves away in a room with books floor to ceiling, talk about God all day and get absolutely nothing done for the kingdom of God. But this simplicity, God, God would never give you a gospel that, not, that, 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 you, that no one, regardless of where you think you are, couldn't understand. You don't have to learn some. There's not some hidden key. He's made himself evident in the simplicity of Jesus. And it is quite simple. And Zach and I were talking before tonight, and it's like, look, if we didn't, we're going to, we kind of stick to this, this format, as you'll see, it's kind of going to be the same as last week. If we didn't stick to this kind of simplicity and train ourselves to see the kind of simple things, we would just go on forever. I could talk about Mormonism for three months. I could, Jehovah's I could just, you could just keep going. We're not focused on that. All the rabbit trails, we're focused on the simplicity of Christ. And so Paul says, the simplicity that is in Christ, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus, say that, say another Jesus, another Jesus. If someone, now notice he didn't say another savior, another God, another religion. He said people are still going to actually be talking about Jesus, but it'll be a different Jesus. It's not enough to say the name of Jesus. Jesus himself says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, look, there's a lot of people talking about Jesus that aren't in me. He said it himself. Not everyone that's talking about Jesus is going to heaven. Paul says, if he comes preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached, that's the apostles, or if you have received a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, say different gospel. There are many gospels, lowercase g gospels. There are tons. The gospel of sex, the gospel of fame, the gospel of pride, of power, of entertainment, the gospel of selfies, right? There is gospels for everything, I think it was Martin Luther or Spurgeon that said, our heart is an idol factory. We know how to make good news about ourselves like crazy. But he says there will be different gospels from the one we preach. A different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And so we're taking a look at two main things. And and, and Zach and I want you to see this process. Look, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, as they did to me a couple months ago, and they haven't come back like I asked. But but as they came to my door, I opened the door, and said, "Hey," I was in workout clothes. They were on the little pe- porch and said, "Have you heard about Jesus?" I, said, I have. I want to talk about him, and, and I said, they, they, "Well, did you know that this?" I said, "Look, let's just start the basic. Who is Jesus?" And what we want to show you on these these cute little PowerPoint slides that we have for you guys is just logically, per Paul's instruction, this idea of another Jesus and a different gospel. Those are just the two buckets you want to get to. Look, who's Savior and how are we saved? Because that's what everyone's trying to answer. Who's Jesus and how does he save me? Everything can be understood about the truth of what someone claims or the falsity of what they claim in those two columns, and it doesn't take much, as we'll show you. Look, I've got four hundred and sixty-eight thousand points in this. I'm gonna give you three in each one. The simplicity, because they're honestly, they're not gonna stay on your porch long. You're gonna end up following down the street, as I have. They had one lady that came up after like five, ten minutes. She came up and like, "Did you want to join in? Do you guys want it? No, we have to go. What? What? Where do you have to be right now?" Another door, right? Let's talk, who is Jesus? What is, when you say you believe in the gospel, what is the gospel to you? Who is Jesus? So you you start with those two lists as we're going to do. That's where you begin to see the difference between a false gospel and the true gospel. And so again, keeping in the format that we took a look at last week, I want to give you some background. And as I said last week, I will do as little as I can to put any words into the mouths of Jehovah's Witnesses, the same as I did with Mormons last week. Did we agree that that was probably a pretty fair presentation? I'm just asking you to look at your own words. And what we'll do is take a look at what the, what the Bible says, the biblical response to it. And so I want to give us a little bit of a background. I want to talk about their scriptures, where they derive their theology, where the church is today, and then we're going to get into our two columns. Sound good? So the background on Jehovah's Witnesses is that they were founded by a guy by the name of Charles Taze Russell in 1872. He was born on February 16, 1852. Russell organized a Bible class in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the age of 18. He was ambitious. In 1879, Russell sought to popularize his inherent ideas on doctrine. He co-published the Herald of the Morning magazine with its founder, N.H. Barber, and by 1884, Russell controlled the publication and renamed it The Watchtower, announcing Jehovah's Kingdom, and founded Zion's Watchtower Track Society, which is now known as the Watchtower Bible and Track Society. The first edition of The Watchtower magazine was only 6,000 copies printed each month. Today, The Jehovah's Witnesses Publishing Complex, which is in Brooklyn, New York, churns out 100,000 books and 800,000 copies of its two magazines every day. Every day. From 6,000 copies a month to 100,000 books and 800,000 copies of its magazines daily. Charles Taze Russell claimed that the Bible could only be understood according to his interpretation. After the death of Russell on October 31st, 1916, a Missouri lawyer by the name of Joseph Joseph Franklin Rutherford took over the presidency of the the Watchtower Society, which was known then as the International Bible Students Association. I think this is also, you'll see stuff about um, the Bible Student Movement was one of the early names too. And so it was then it was known as the International Bible Students Association, and in 1931, he changed the name of the organization to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Today, about 8.2 million Jehovah's Witnesses that are actively engaged in evangelism. They crush Christianity when it comes to this. They crush it. They are willing to do for a false gospel... What very few Christians are willing to do for the real one. Look down on them as you may, they are on mission. I've been to a service. They are nicer than you. Just need you to know that. They are certainly nicer than me because I'm the guy that just told you that they're nicer than you. They are some of the nicest folks I've ever met. Same with Mormons, to be honest. They do nice better than Christians. But unfortunately, nice doesn't save you. 8.2 Jehovah's Witnesses that are actively involved in evangelism, over, 15, well, over 115,000 congregations, and they've got roughly almost 20 million annual members that go to a memorial every year for the for the memorialization of Christ's death, Jesus Christ's death. I've got that they're both they're they're best known for door-to-door preaching and literature distribution. Refusing to celebrate birthdays and holidays, refusing to join military services, and refusing blood transfusions. That's, that's kind of the ripple that, that is out the most in culture. We're not going to deal with that. It's tertiary at best. They claim to be a Christian denomination. And, and I joked, but I tend to start there when they, they come to my door and say, have you heard about this? We'd like you to... I said, look, do you believe I'm a Christian? Have you accepted Jesus? You yeah, say, I have. Then you are, yeah what are you trying to convert me to? What are you trying to convert me to? If you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, then why are we talking about this? But they preach another Jesus in a different gospel. And so we've got to talk about where they, they, they root their theology, right? We've got to take a look. And the Mormons had multiple books, did they not? One of which was the Bible, okay? One of which was the Bible, and then they had three others, for Jehovah's Witnesses, they too have the Bible. They have what's known as the New World Translation. The New World Translation. Now, they say, Jehovah's Witness will say that their theology comes from the Bible alone. But already there's an issue with their own literature. Because in that declaration, they contradict what the Watchtower organization says. I'll show you. This cannot be true that they don't have other sources or else it would contradict the Watchtower, which says that it's not possible to study the Bible alone to have good theology. It says this in the Watchtower, December 1st, 1990, page 19. Let us face the fact that no matter how much Bible reading we have done, we would never have learned the truth on our own. We would have not discovered the truth regarding Jehovah, his His purposes and attributes, the meaning and importance of his name, the kingdom, Jesus' ransom, the difference between God's organization and Satan's, nor why God has permitted wickedness. The watchtower says, "You cannot learn the truth by the Bible alone, yet they claim they studied the Bible alone. It also says this in the watchtower, and this is the magazine. Watchtower, October 1st, 1967, page 587. It says, thus, the Bible is an organizational book that belongs to the Christian congregation as an organization, not to individuals. Regardless of how sincerely they may believe that they can interpret the Bible. Now, we know from scripture that who interprets the Bible? The Holy Spirit, at least correctly. Men have interpreted the Bible and come up with all sorts of perverse things. There were Bible thumpers during slavery that could justify it with Scripture in their own mind, in their own interpretation. You are free to interpret the Bible, but there is one who correctly interprets the Bible. It's the one who wrote it. It's the Holy Spirit. As I've said it before, the job of Zach and mine is not to interpret the Bible for you. It is to be submitted to the Holy Spirit that he may interpret it and communicate it through us. Our job is not to interpret the Bible. It's to be submitted to the one who does. And so they too have the 66 books of the Bible Bible, as their foundation. Now, a little bit more on the New World Translation. They originally used the King James Version, which is, and if you know, we've got the New King James Version. They originally used... The KJV, in October 1946, the president of the Watchtower Society proposed a fresh translation of the New Testament, which Jehovah's Witnesses used, usually referred to as the Christian Greek scriptures. Work began on December 2nd, 1947, when the New World Bible Translation Committee, we're going to talk about this, the New World Bible Translation Committee was formed. Now, who is that committee? No one knows composed of Jehovah's witnesses who claim to be anointed. Now they won't release the names of those who translated the Bible. They claim that it's because they don't seek any notoriety. May seem humble. Okay? But what I would what I would presuppose is that they have absolutely no formal training in the original languages. Greek, Hebrew, and a tiny bit of Aramaic. None. And here's what's interesting. The Watchtower magazine, August 15th, 1981, states, I'll summarize it, and then I'll read it, and I'll re-summarize it, so keep in mind that, that Christianity had certain doctrines, certain essentials that were moving through history, and then this was a defection from that. And what they found is that when people studied the Bible alone, they returned to what they consider to be apostate doctrines. I'll show you. From time to time, there have arisen among the ranks of Jehovah's people those who, like the original Satan have adopted an independent fault-finding attitude. They say that it is sufficient to read the Bible exclusively, which is ironic because they still say that all their theology is based on the Bible alone. To read the Bible exclusively, either alone or in small groups at home. But strangely, again, Watchtower Magazine, August 15th, 1981. not making fun, simply reading their own words. But strangely, through such, quote, Bible reading they have reverted right back to the apostate doctrines that commentaries by Christendom's clergy teaching 100 years ago. It's almost like if you read God's word on its own, you start to believe what's known as the essential Christian doctrines. They can have none of that. And so therefore, the watchtower must pump out magazines to correct these apostate doctrines. And, and, and Jehovah's Witnesses study five times a week. You guys are like, man, I made it to church this week. You're welcome, <laughs> pastor, I'm busy. Five nights a week. And I've been to one of those. And they call people up and they role play and they evangelize and they, and they talk about how to defend their faith and how to answer questions and what to ask and how to dissect and how to move. And they train them five days a week. And they tell them what this means. And they say, this is the only place you can truly learn about this. Because what they found by their own admission is if you study this on your own, you start to believe what the Christian guys were teaching 100 years ago. Now, I want to do something. I'm holding up the, the New King James Version of the Bible right here. I just want to tell you a couple of things. This translation right here is published by Thomas Nelson Incorporated, which is a subsidiary of News Corp. The New Testament was published in 1979, Psalms in 1980, and the full Bible in 1982, seven years to complete it. It was conceived by a man named Arthur Farstad, inaugurated in 1975 with two meanings, one in Nashville, one in Chicago, that consisted of 130 biblical scholars, pastors, and theologians. 130. I'll give you a partial list of the men who translated this Bible. Dr. Ronald B. Allen, professor of Old Testament language and exegesis from Western Conservative Baptist Seminary. Dr. Barry J. Beetzel, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages. This is partial contributors of the Old Testament from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Dr. Walter R. Bodine, Associate Professor of Semitic Languages and Old Testament from Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. D. David Garland, Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. David K. Hutter, professor of Old Testament and Greek at Nyack College. Those are just five of the men that contributed to the Old Testament translation. Partial list of the New Testament contributors Dr. James Boyer. Professor Emeritus of New Testament and Greek at Grace Theological Seminary. Dr. A. Glenn Campbell, Professor Emeritus of New Testament, Greek, and Theology, Montana Institute of the Bible. Dr. Virtus E. Gideon, Professor of the New Testament and Greek, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Robert G. Horber. Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary. Dr. Charles R. Smith, Professor of Christian Theology and Greek at Grace Theological Seminary. Again, those are just five of the guys that contributed to the translation of the 130 that contributed to the translation that I hold in my hand today. Just as, as distinguished are the men that sat. Same sort of title, rank, prestige, understanding is the executive review committee of both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the New King James Version, which we teach in Calvary Chapel. The Commonwealth Oversight Committee, which oversees the British translation. The North American Oversight Committee, which oversees the American translation. The Nashville Convocation, where they put the final, final touches together. The New King James Bible Review Committee, and the New King James Translation Committee. There is absolutely nothing to hide about the men that translated this Bible nothing and if you write Thomas Nelson they'll send you the full list these are the men these are their credentials some of them are dead but you can still call most of them you can for yourself see now when the Jehovah's Witnesses come they say look but look I say let's just let's, let's kick it off John 1, 1. <clears throat> in the beginning was the word word was with God and the word what and they say was a God Interesting. Who translated that? Well, we don't. We don't. I'll show you the guys that translated mine. What are you so afraid of? It's a deal. Oh, they, they don't tell us. They don't want. To. Why don't they tell you? Don't you want to know? Do they have any any understanding of the Greek? Any understanding of the Hebrew, Aramaic? I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying. Look, who's your source? You say you've got a great translation. Nothing to hide with the one that you hold in your hand. Or any of the other ones. None of the other ones. And I would challenge you, I'm not going to do it for you, because I just did my homework. If you have a different translation, I would challenge you this week to go dig up who did it. I would. Don't take my word for it. If you've got the NIV, which is the number one selling translation in America, King James Version um, is second, and New King James is third. If you've got ESV, you've got anything... NASB if you can go dig up who translated it. Right? Nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. And look, as I said last week, there's there's a lot of ways we could go with this whole thing. Here's a couple of false doctrines that we won't touch tonight. That there is no trinity, we'll touch on a little bit, that God is one God and one person, that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, that Jehovah's first creation was his only begotten son, that Jesus was born again, that Jesus did not die on the cross but on a stake, they believe he was crucified like this, that Jesus returned invisibly to earth in 1914, which means we're currently in the thousand year millennial reign. Jesus came back in 1914, invisibly, that Jesus' ransom did not include Adam, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. These are doctrines that we will not touch tonight. They exist, and I'd encourage you to dig them up on your own. But Paul says to be careful about another Jesus and a different gospel. And so let's talk about Jesus, false and true. Let's talk about the gospel, false and true. And the A students get their pen out. I was a B plus student, so I wouldn't be taking notes at this point, but you can have my notes afterwards, by the way. I've got a nice fat list last week of the morning, and people kept writing in, texting me, and stuff like that. It's totally cool. Come up afterwards. You want these notes of everything I'm talking about? I'll email them to you. But Jehovah's Witnesses preach a false Jesus. First and foremost, they believe that Jesus was simply a perfect man. Not God. And again, this is not me presupposing. This comes from Reasoning from the Scriptures, 1985, page 306. It says that Jesus was only a perfect man, not God in the flesh. John 1, 1 through 5 disagrees. Jesus is God. We talked a little bit about this last week with Mormonism. I'm going to try not to be redundant. We're going to take a look at John one one. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses immediately say, No, 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 the Bible says was a God. And that's where I take them down the translation route, to be honest. But if they're not willing to concede that, then I simply say this. Let's go with your translation then. He is a God. Yeah. Question, is Satan a true God or a false God? He's a false God. Is Jesus a true God or a false God? Now they're caught. If they say he's a true God, they contradict the watchtower. If they say he's a false God, they make Jesus out to be not God, therefore can no longer substantiate their claim that they're Christian. True or false? Jesus God. So even if we say a God, which one is he? We've declared that there's false gods. Satan is one of them. Baal and other such demons are others. Is Jesus, if just a God, is he a true God or a false God? They will tend to say, well, he's like a God, and then that's a whole mishmash. What do you mean by that? How can just someone like a God have anything to do with my salvation? The Bible says that the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God, not in the beginning when God was created, but when God created something called time. Did you know that? There was a time... When there was no such thing as the concept of time. The Bible says in the beginning God created. He created the heavens and the earth. Time didn't even exist. Heaven didn't even exist. There was just simply God. There was no universe. There was no black holes. There was no solar system. There was no Mars. There was nothing. There was just simply God. And then he created the heavens and the earth. And he created this parameter known as time. He's like, I'm going to create the beginning of time. It's going to start here. It's going to end here. I can see underneath it. God can see over it. Jesus was with him creating even the very concept of time. This is not in the beginning when God was created or in the beginning when Jesus was created. No, Jesus was creating before time began. That's what eternity is. People say, how does that work? I don't know. Get in line when we're in heaven to ask Jesus about that one. Not sure. Could you explain the whole eternity thing? Are we going to be here a while? We're going to be here a while, right? Before the concept of time even began, it says that he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, echoing Colossians 1, which we took a look at last week with Mormonism. All things were made through him. What that means is that when God the Father spoke in Genesis 1.1, Jesus created everything. All things were created through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. It doesn't say that about the Father. It doesn't say that about the Holy Spirit. Equally God in the Trinity, but with separate roles. It's a picture of the family. It's the picture of the church. That there's, there's separate roles yet equal. Jesus created everything eternally with God. Eternally as God. It says, in him life is. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend. See, the true Jesus of Christianity is one that has always existed as the all powerful second person of the Trinity, as we'll see. And so, the false Jesus that is set up by Jehovah's Witnesses is that he was merely a perfect man, but not God but not God. The truth about Jesus is that Jesus is God. The second point is that Jesus was Michael the archangel and then became a man. So a spirit being that became a man. You can find this in the Watchtower, May 15th, 1963, page 307. That Jesus was Michael the archangel Where did angels come from? Are angels eternal? No. No. It says that in the beginning, God created. He created all. Look, let's just do it. It's like a Bible study. You can like open the Bible. Stuff is crazy. Some people can open. Apparently I can't. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So even the evening and the morning was on the first day. And it says, he goes on to create everything, land, sea. He created everything that you can see and everything that you can't. It says everything that's visible and invisible, it says. Colossians 1, 16. Created the visible and the invisible. He's speaking of the physical realm and the supernatural realm. He created angels. Then the Bible tells us one of them got a big head. Huge head. was probably a teenager, right? Thought very, very highly of himself, though he had no responsibility whatsoever, which is a classic teenager, right? All the 18 and 19 year old people are mad right now. Okay, right? He thought, you know what? I can be like God. I can be like God. So he, 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 he assimilated a third of the angels. How many angels are there? Bible says it's innumerable. So what's the math term for that? A lot. Because I was a communications major. Okay. A lot. A third of an innumerable force. They rebelled against God. Said, I'll be like God. We'll overthrow heaven. They lost. They got kicked out. Now there are two sides to the spiritual battle. That's why when people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I say, which side? I just told you, I'm not not religious, I'm spiritual. I know. So spiritual bucket, which side are you on? What do you mean? I just do yoga. I don't know what you're talking about. I just I'm... <laughs> You want to tap into the spiritual realm. You don't want to talk about two sides, right? I'm not going to go off on a yoga tangent. Okay, so though I could. All right. So right it says there's two sides. There is an angelic army and there is a demonic army. You can't just tap spirituality and assume it's all good. You have to test the spirits, as the Bible says. So on one side, you have the the angels. On the other side, you have demons, and they have rank. Like any good military force, they have rank. Michael is a general. A general. He leads the angels. And by the way, angels and demons are both epic creatures. Demons are epic because they were angels. Amazing creatures, They're not cute like the cartoons. They're not. They're fascinating, wise, holy, powerful, the Bible says. And above all of those, above the top of the ranks, was this guy, Michael, the archangel. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you Jesus used to be him, and then he became a man. The truth about Jesus is that he was not Michael, he is the second person of the Trinity. that's two parts. We'll take it like this. Jesus is first and foremost, not the Archangel Michael. There's three archangels named in the Bible, Michael, Gabriel and Lucifer. Satan used to be a general in God's angelic army. Michael was the archangel mentioned in Daniel 10:13, Daniel 10:21, Daniel 12:1, Jude 9 and Revelation 12:7. Now If Jesus was Michael, does that make him God or not God? Not God. God. So if Jesus, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, is simply Michael the archangel, Jude 9 does not make sense. And we see that he's contending with the devil in Jude 9. It says, yet Michael the archangel contending with the devil... When he disputed the body of Moses, dared not bring him again, or dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, so Michael the Archangel said this the Lord will rebuke you. The Lord, my commanding officer, will rebuke you. That makes Michael the Archangel not God. Or he simply would have rebuked Satan himself. Jesus would not have to call on the name of anyone else in order to rebuke the devil because he is God. Michael did call on the name of the Lord to rebuke the devil because he is not God. Jesus is not Michael, but he is the second person of the Trinity. John 9, 35 through 39 says this. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he found him, he said to them, do you believe I love this? People are like, like, seriously, there is a monstrous side of the argument that says Jesus never said he was God. You know that? People, atheist, agnostic, say, show me where Jesus said I am God. Now, did he say those exact words? No. I am God. They're looking for a quote. doesn't exist. Did he say that he was from heaven? Yeah. Yeah, Muhammad never said that. Krishna never said that. Buddha never said that. Did he say that he, can, he alone can forgive sins? Yeah, did Christian ever say that? Buddha, Charles Russell Taze, Mother Teresa, Chuck Smith, Zach. No one claims that, right? Did he accept worship as God? Did he not? Like if, if he's just a good teacher and people fell down on their face and called him God and worshiped him and he allowed it, He'd be a terrible teacher. He'd be a cult leader. You can't accept worship as God and just simply be a good teacher. That's deceptive. It's demonic. You don't worship Mark. You don't worship Zach. We worship Jesus. Why? Because he is God. And when they fell on their face in front of Jesus, he accepted it. Why? Because he was God. He was God. But I love this. It's even clearer. John 9, 35-39. He never said he was God. Okay. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to them, hey, do you believe in the son of God? Now we know from John 4, 24, that God is not physical. God, the father, the Holy spirit are not physical. It says God is spirit. Son of God is simply a messianic term. That he would be God's tithe to humanity, that, that he would send his son. And Jesus did come, and he was God in the flesh. But he says this Do you believe in the Son of God? And that had everyone knew what he was talking about. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking. With you. Jesus never said he was God. You got to rewrite the Bible to come up with that stuff. Do you believe in the Son of God? Who is he? You're talking with him there, homie, right? <laughs> Let's go. We've been doing this for years, been camping for years, and you haven't gotten this yet. Jesus said, I am God. He said he was sinless, blameless, that he came from heaven, he would go back. No world religion leader says that, except a couple weird, like I think there was a couple months ago, some dude in Florida said he was Jesus. Everyone's like, get a blog. No one cares. No one claims that. And then Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into the world. Jesus never judges. You Christians shouldn't judge. Jesus said, judge righteously. And he said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be blind. And we know that he's not the literal son. But the truth about Jesus is that he was not Michael. He is the second person of a triune God. The third false presupposition of Jesus from the Jehovah's Witnesses is that he did not rise from the dead physically. And look, this one may not seem as sexy as some of the other ones, but this is everything, you need to see that this is everything. This isn't just Easter in our faith. That he didn't rise physically. He said he just, he rose rose as a spirit, which sounds kind of okay. And if you're not trained in, in understanding the scripture, you might kind of be like, well, maybe, I think, I don't know if I could support it this way or the other. No, he physically resurrected from the grave so that death would be defeated by him. He can't just float off as a spiritual being or death's still one. His body's still in the grave. And they find his bones like every other world religion. You can go to their graves today. Not Jesus's. Why? Because he rose physically. I need you to see how intense that is. Jesus rode physically. By the way, did I give the uh, marking? Yeah, I gave the me. 15th, Jesus did not rise from the dead in his physical body. That's from the Awake magazine, July 22nd, 1973, page 4. I'll give you another one. It says that Jesus was raised not as a human creature, but as a spirit. That's let God be true, page 276. The Bible disagrees. The Bible translated by guys that know how to translate the Bible disagrees. It says this in John 2, 19 through 21. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. After he, you know, he went into church and threw tables. We don't talk about the Jesus very much, right? He went in, he chucked the table. All the Pharisees, all the religious people are looking at him. He says this, he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. They're like, are you kidding me? This thing takes decades. It's like three days. You guys don't get it. He said, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? The Bible says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. John 20, 24 through 27 says, Now Thomas, doubting Thomas, called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples said, Theref- therefore, said to him, We have not seen the Lord, or we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst. It's a grand entrance. Jesus was no longer clearly in a human body, but he was still in a physical body that had been glorified. Dude's just walking through walls. And it says, he was with them in the midst. And he said, peace to you. There's an exclamation point. So he actually kind of yelled. I think Jesus was having fun, right? Like, like, check this out. Yo, peace to you. Everyone's like, right? (laughs) Thomas pees his robe, you know, like. (laughs) Poor Thomas, he gets bagged up. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Now, if he just floated off as a spirit being, how does he still resemble the scars of the crucifixion? He says, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And, and, and 1 Corinthians 15, 14 puts the weight of this. Jehovah's Witness will say that Jesus did not raise from the dead physically. And I told you this is everything that Jesus rose from the dead physically in a glorified body, it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen. it says, and if Christ is not risen, risen. It says he's the firstborn of the dead, which means Lazarus was resuscitated and then died again. His bones went into the ground. Jesus was resurrected, firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to overcome death the only one to overcome death. It says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Zach and I should just simply go home. We should just simply spend Sunday nights at Chipotle. Right? Which, (laughs) if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. If Jesus did not rise from the dead physically in a glorified body, Defeating death. Your faith is worthless. Stop coming to church. It's over if he's still in the ground. It's dead. You're just simply members of a cult at that point. Following pastor is not a savior. Because if he can't overcome death, how dare he declare that he can do the same for you? If Jesus didn't rise physically, your faith is is futile. This is a much bigger point than Christians. Christians want to go so far into some of the early arguments, but this one is massive. Jesus rose physically. People recognized him. He had scars on his hands. He was in a glorified body, which the Bible says we will get. That's the good news. The good news is not that we go into the ground and then we get a cloud and a harp. And we're a spirit thing elsewhere. Says that we will get glorified bodies like Jesus has a glorified body. We will not be God, but we will be with God. That's the good news. Jesus rose from the dead physically and then ascended after 40 days into heaven. Jehovah's Witnesses will come to your door and tell you that they are Christian and ask you if you know Jesus. Jesus. We say, I do know Jesus. Let's talk about him. And these are the first three points that I would go to. Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in the gospel. We're all about the good news. Good news of what Jesus has done. We've taken a look at Savior. Now we need to take a look at salvation, have we not? We know Savior. Do we know salvation? There are false gospels everywhere. Paul says there's going to be different gospels out there. How do I know the true gospel? We start with these three points. The false gospel of Jehovah's Witnesses is that you are justified by keeping God's laws. Now, this will be a thread next week as well. This is the redundancy. Because every false religion has to be about works. People are like, all religions are the same. I took a comparative religion class at my community college. All religions are basically the same. You have not studied the claims of Christianity. And to be honest, the church has not declared them very clear either. We are the only, yes, one true, but even if you lump us in with religion, which is relangari, how do you relink to God? Religion, the word relangare means relinking to God. So the question is, what relinks you to God, and does it have the power to do so? Every other religion will say you relink to God by becoming better. Only Christianity says, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you this, that you are justified by keeping God's laws. They're like, no, we don't. We don't, we, we're saved by grace. Nonsense. Your own literature in the Watchtower, February 15th, 1983, page 12, says many have found the second requirement. See, they've got four requirements for salvation. I think it's a knowledge, I, oh, I gotta know my own notes, right? It's a knowledge of God, keeping the laws, fellowship of believers, and like service, I believe. But, but what they're going to talk about is the second one. It says this, Many have found the second requirement more difficult. No kidding. I put that in. That's, that's not... It is to obey God's laws. Yes, to conform one's life to the moral requirements. Set out in the Bible. This includes refraining from debauched, immoral ways of life. You simply start by saying, how are you saved? By following God's laws. Have you followed them all? And are you currently following them all to a T before you and God 100%? You clean? Well, no, I'm sort of saying, you're not saved. What are you trying to convert me to? Are you kidding me? we We just logically deduced You're incapable of keeping the law. Your own literature says keeping the law is the second of four requirements to be saved. How on earth can you declare to be saved? You'd have to be perfect. You'd have to be perfect. Hundreds of laws. Hundreds. How are you doing with that, friend? Right? Justified by keeping God's laws. It's a false gospel. The true gospel of Christianity is that we are justified apart from the law. Look, the, the New Testament reflects back on the Old Testament and, and God's law in the whole and says it's like a schoolmaster. The law is there to protect you, right? Look, the, the sexual ethic laws that God in place, it wasn't just because he didn't want you to have any fun. It's because he wants to protect you so you can have even more fun when you get married, right? Only the married couples laughed at that. Everyone else thought it was a little too awkward, Right? So yeah, there's the protection in the law, but, but, but the New Testament says it's like a schoolmaster. It shows you that you can't keep the law. God's law points to the fact that you can't keep the law. And the people were so focused on the laws, the Pharisees, and they were epic at it. Paul even says as a, as a Pharisee before the law, he was blameless. And he's like, I wash all that aside if I can just know Jesus. He says that in Philippians because he knows the observation of the law won't save him. And so the the truth of the gospel of Christianity is that we are justified apart from the law. I'm not going to be redundant from last week, but we're going to take a look at Romans 3, 27 through 28. It says, where is the boasting then, Paul says? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It's a totally separate bucket. There's all the law and the protection and and the pointing to Christ and the schoolmaster nature look, there's all these laws to show you that you can't keep the law. How many of you have a driver's license? We're going to do something here. We're not even going to talk about the Bible's laws. How many of you have ever changed a lane without a blinker? Most of you are lying right now. Sinners, right? See, you couldn't keep that one. Did you know, I'm, look, I'm on a motorcycle every day. I am so hyper-conscious of the laws. Did you know that when you you, you, you pull up to a right turn and there's three lanes. I don't even, I didn't take driver's ed here. I don't know if they teach driver's ed in California. It doesn't seem like it, right? Did you know, you come to a complete stop. By the way, your, your, your wheels are already across the line, aren't they? So you have broken one law, right? You sped to get there, by the way. We all did it, okay? I passed you at 90 on the motorcycle, right? Your, your, your wheels are past the line. You've broken a law. Now what you're doing is you're checking. It's safe to go. You pull in, right? Do you pull into that immediate lane? Nah, you kind of drift into the second one. Now, did you notice that there's actually a straight line for like 50 feet at the beginning of that lane? Then it goes dotted. You crossed over where it was solid. You've broken a second law. And you probably didn't use your blinker, right? And it's 35. You're going to do at least 40. You can. We cannot even keep... Minuscule traffic law. You think you can keep the scope of God's law? Crazy. One sin separates you from God. One law. Soon as your wheels go over that line. No. You're not perfect. Why are you at my doorstep trying to convert me into a clear lack of salvation? If we're justified by keeping God's laws, no one is saved. But Paul says, we are justified apart from the law. How excited are you about that? Galatians 2.16 says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, look, we can go into a whole study of grace. And you talk about holiness and all that sort of stuff. Look, when you are saved, right? You don't have to keep the law, but when you are saved, you will want to keep the law. You'll want to. God God himself will give you a propulsion toward holiness, not toward debauchery. You'll never be sinless, but by the grace of God in sanctification, you will sin less because he will be the thrust behind it, but you're already saved. Now he's just gonna do some work on your desires now that you've been saved. We don't work on our desires to be saved. God radically turns you around and says, you're saved now, go this way instead. And that's where holiness and sanctification come. Jehovah's Witnesses would have you believe, unfortunately, that they're justified by keeping God's laws. And they can't turn circles around that one. That's a false gospel. They'll tell you that there is no hell. No one wants to talk about hell, but Jesus talked about it more than anyone. He didn't want anyone to go there. They believe in in, in what's known as annihilationism. Okay? It says this in Let God Be True, page 59, 60, and 67. It says, when you die, you cease to exist. Essentially, judgment day is only for the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses that are resurrected to life. Now, I, I try to say this without joking, but theology, we all know Jehovah's Witnesses ascribe to this 144,000 number. It comes from Revelation, yes? By the way, they're Jews, okay? They're Jews in the Old Testament. I've taught through Revelation. It's from the tribes, okay? So you can just go down the ethnic route. Are you Jewish? Because they were in the Bible. Those 144,000, which God moves through the tribulation, were Jews. They subscribed to this 144,000. And that works as, as only 144,000 are saved. That works until your membership goes to 144,000 and one person. Now your theology has to shift to fit what you are claiming. And so once membership reached 144,000, they claim now that the 144,000 receive. Immortal life, and then other Jehovah's Witnesses receive eternal life. The 144,000 are now at the head table at the wedding party, if you will. Things have to shift when you're imposing theology on the Bible. And so once they breached 144,000, it had to change. And they say this, that Judgment Day will be only the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses resurrected to life, eternal On paradise earth, but the 144,000 will be saved or resurrected to immortal life as opposed to eternal life. The rest of all mankind will be annihilated, wiped out, and made to not exist with no eternal punishment in fiery hell. The false gospel of Jehovah's Witnesses is that there is no hell. You're either on board or you just cease to exist, which doesn't really make for a compelling case, to be honest if I have to be good now and deny myself of all these earthly lusts and pleasures, but if, if, the, if the punishment is just not existing, I'll probably just go with that. I get a whole life of fun at least, right? Now, it's tough to put hell under the gospel because the gospel is good news, right? Right? But Jesus talked about it more than anyone. Jesus on hell in Matthew 13, 41 through 42 and 49 through 50 says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, those are people who are not saved. Not those who have saved that break the law, but those that are not saved. All those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. What's he talking about? Is Jesus speaking in metaphors again? There will be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. We don't exactly know how hell is, but it's awful. Crying constantly. People grinding their teeth from sheer torment constantly. Unable to sleep. Unable to rest. Unable to relax. Unable to be in peace. Wailing gnashing their teeth so it will be in the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9, 43 and 48 through 49, Jesus says that hell is fiery. In Matthew 8, 12 and 22, 13, he says that it is a place of darkness. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 46, he says that it is Eternal. In Luke 16:23, it is a place for torment. Revelation 14:9 through11, it says, "Then a third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the winepress of the wrath of God." which we see in Revelation 19. Jesus it says that he comes to pour it out. Why? Because he absorbed it all on the cross. Why is Jesus angry? He's not, but he absorbed all the wrath of God on the cross. Therefore, he sits with it in heaven right now, and it's his to give back out when he sees fit. And it says, he shall also drink of the winepress of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Some of you thought hell was a place that people go to be away from Jesus. Jesus. The Bible says that his kingdom has absolutely no end. Some of you think that Satan rules in hell. Some of you think, well, Satan's just glad he got his own apartment. It's a little warm, he's near the furnace, but at least he got his own pad and he can party with his drunk friends. You need to know that Satan is tormented in hell. Demons are tormented tormented in hell. Those who wreck Jesus reject Jesus will be tormented in hell. And it says that it will be in front of Jesus. Satan does not hold the key to hell. Jesus does. He puts absolutely no one there. Hell was created for demons. You say, this is harsh language. This is the Bible. This is harsh language. This is eternity. So you should be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. How many of you stayed up for like just two days? How awful that is? Chad and I have been through the Marine Corps boot camp. You get there Black Friday, we're up through the first weekend, right? Friday to Sunday, it's miserable. Three days. No sleep. No sleep. You just want to tear people's heads off. Bailey's been there too. Three days. This is no sleep for eternity in hell. No rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name Luke twelve four through 5 says, Jesus says this. He says, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. And this is a healthy fear. Look, my two boys know that I love them. And yet when I call their name, you see a moment of awe and respect. That's what the Bible calls fear for God. When I say, Asher, he stops. He's arrested. He doesn't even know what's happened. He can't see. His curls are like this. He's not afraid of daddy, but he has a respect when I call his name. It's the fear that the Bible's talking about. It's a healthy fear. He says, I will show you, Jesus says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. I say to you, fear him, Jesus says, fear God. Not those that can just simply kill the body, but those that can be cast, that, that God can cast in for eternity those who reject him. Now, this is tough to stomach. And some of you say, why would a loving God send anyone to hell? I would respond by saying, God has sent no one we chose at first. Why would God send people to hell? The real question is, why would he let a single person into heaven? If God is holy, he can have absolutely nothing to do with us. Can't. It's not, why would he send someone to hell? It's why would he let anyone into heaven? And we don't believe that he's predestined people to hell, but that we are sending ourselves there in full rebellion since the garden. And only those who are gripped by the true Jesus, gripped by the true gospel and place their faith in him can then be saved. The truth is that hell is real, but that's not where the good news ends. Jehovah's Witnesses would have you. I'm going to go late again. Relax. We'll have you believe that Jesus mediates only for the 144,000, which again has to shift now. It says this in the Desire for Peace and Security Worldwide, 1986, page 10. It says, Likewise, the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, is not the mediator between Jehovah God and all mankind. I don't know how much more clear I can make it. I actually, we should thank them for being so clear. It is not, he is not the mediator between Jehovah God and all mankind. He is the mediator between his heavenly father, Jehovah God, and the nation of spiritual Israel, which is limited to only 144,000 members. False gospel is that Jesus is not the mediator for everyone. The Bible disagrees when properly translated by men that would put their names behind it. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What that means is that when Jesus presents His bride in heaven, some of you think that 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 God will be judging you. And and for for Christians, look, they're, they're, look, we understand that that much will be given to those. And, and there's a there's a whole study to take a look at when you get to heaven. Okay. When you get to heaven, look, there, there's going to be roles and jobs, and it's going to be distributed, and, and houses, and all that sort of stuff. We get all that, but you need to know that first and foremost, there is simply in or out. There are simply those who are in Christ and those who are apart from Him. That's it. And so what Jesus does is he mediates. He says, look, Satan, it says in in Revelation, it says that he will be the accuser of the brethren. You'll stand in a courtroom before God, before Jesus himself, the Bible says. It says that the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. So you'll stand before Jesus. Satan will say, do you swear to tell the truth? He'll be like, yeah, I swear to tell the truth on my own name, yeah, for sure. And he says, look, this guy is terrible. You should see the things Mark has done in his lifetime. And Jesus will say, I know. I'm not judging him. I'm judging me. God says, I'll judge me. So we are not specifically judged. God doesn't see us through the lens of our sin, He sees us through the lens of our faith in Jesus. And in that lens, you're perfect. When God sees you, He sees a sinner. That's why the Bible says that He hates sinners. I've never heard that in church. It's true. But when God sees you through the lens of Jesus Christ, he sees you as perfect. That's the transcendent entrance. That when you pass through the gates into heaven, you are not seen for who you are and what you've done. You're seen for him who you've placed your faith in. Does that make sense? You are judged on what Jesus has done, not what you have done. And Jesus is the mediator. And the Bible says that he's our great advocate, which is a legal term. And so the true gospel is that Jesus mediates for all. For all. It says he lives currently to make intercession for all. And I'll end on this. This is one of those moments where as a pastor, you try to grab everyone's attention by saying something like this, faith itself does not save you. Faith itself does not save you. You So what? Are you kidding me? I'm leaving. This is heresy. You've taught on sola fide that faith alone, by grace alone. Look, faith in and of itself does not save you. Let's say a family goes to a swim meet and they're watching their high school son swim and he's swimming, he's got a little sister who's in the stands and she's eating a pack of Skittles because who doesn't love Skittles? And she's eating and she's eating and, and she drops one and it goes underneath the bleachers. Crowd erupts, the event ends, everyone rushes home. Swimmers are in the locker room. Families just outside. Janitor comes out to start sweeping. Let's say someone comes back in and falls in the pool and can't swim. Now they can have all the faith in the world in a lot of different things. But if the object of their faith has no ability to save them, it's futile. If while drowning and screaming at the janitor, throw me that skittle, it's great that that person has faith. But that faith alone will not save you from drowning. It's the object of your faith that has the power to save or not save you from drowning. If that man places his faith and says, throw me that life preserver, now we're talking about an object of his faith that can save him. If you, when you even come to the concept of God, think, I've got faith in what I've done. I've got faith that I've lived a good life. I've got faith that I've, I've been at least 51% on the good bad scale. I've essentially got faith in me. Or if you accept a false Jesus and they say, look, I, look, we believe in Jesus. We love Jesus. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't God. He was, he was just a man. He was a perfect man. He was, he was once an angel. He didn't really rise from the dead physically. A faith in a false Jesus won't save you. And our friends in the Jehovah's Witnesses are putting their faith in an object that can't save them. But the tendency for us in Christianity is to to start to move in this works-based direction because we've learned that our whole lives. You do good things, you get good things. The power of the gospel is that it's the object of our faith that saves us. It's the true Jesus that saves us. It's the true gospel that saves us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, you are true and your gospel is true and we love you for it. That's the simplicity of it. You are God with the power to save. You are who you said you are. And when we're drowning and we've all been drowning and we reach out in faith, we know that it's the object of that faith that saves or cannot save us. And so I pray that for this body of believers that we would be excited for those that are Christians. We would be excited that we placed our faith in the true Jesus. And that we would be broken for those and have a compassion and a love for those who have faith in a false object that cannot save them from drowning. Jesus put us on mission to declare the truth of who you are and the reality of your true gospel. Jesus, we're gonna sing to you now. We're gonna take communion in remembrance of what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for pulling us out of the water so that we can live eternally with you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got communion. We do it non-corporately to remember what Jesus did on the cross. We take the bread first because it symbolizes his body, that his body was broken. As your sin We take the juice as a symbol of his blood, which is poured out to atone for it. If Jesus is the object of your faith tonight, if you've been stirred by the Holy Spirit to put your faith in Jesus tonight, the one true object of your salvation that can save you, partake in remembrance of what he's done. Amen.